Listeners, welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is the last episode we're going to record in 2023, although you're probably going to hear it in 2024. And I am joined with Brian. How are you doing, Brian? We followed a star to be here, everybody. <laughs> this is where it led us. So I think, listeners, the, the episode that you most recently heard, the one that was most recently on our feed, is actually one we recorded a few weeks ago which is a discussion with Gavin. And in that, we talked about The Three Wise Men and uh, a few movies that depicted The Three Wise Men with highly varying levels of biblical fidelity and just ridiculousness. Bi-fi, biblical fidelity. (laughs) And we liked it so much, we decided to continue. That's right, because what I have today is... A movie that I just couldn't not bring to the pod. It's got some connective tissue to movies we've discussed, and the idea is just kind of bonkers and appealing to me. And it's a film called Journey to Bethlehem. And what this movie is, is basically taking the nativity story and turning it into a Disney Channel original musical. Now, it's not actually by Disney. It's released by Affirm Films, which is a wing of Sony that does faith-based films. So it's basically like the Christian rock version of the Sony film production wing. Um, They've actually made a lot of movies over the past 20 or so years, and they tend to be like modestly profitable. It's like almost everyone doubles its budget, basically. It's like a $15 million budget, $30 million box office and so this was their their latest one. Uh, this one did go to theaters, and then it came out on streaming, which is where I caught it. I did not get to see this one in theaters, unfortunately, I guess you would say. Did it have a theatrical release? Yes, yep, for a few weeks. Oh, wow. I mean, a lot of these get like limited releases in areas they think that the Christians will go out. Because you know how the U.S. is. There's huge swaths of the population are fundamentalist Christian and they try to lean towards things that support those values. So I think there is a market for this kind of movie in general. Yeah, I heard about it on the radio. There was an ad for it during the Christmas music and it said it was a nativity musical starring Milo Mannheim and I just about veered off the road. (laughs) Yeah, I got pretty excited when I saw this because Milo Mannheim is kind of the linchpin for us. So we joked about this in our recording with Gavin. I was like, oh, the Journey to Bethlehem starring, starring Milo Mannheim. I'm so excited. And Gavin was like, wait, hold on a second. Are, are you? That's what's drawing you in? It's not Antonio Banderas, who is like the actual big celeb that they pulled in. But no, for us, it's Milo Mannheim, or at least for me, because we've we've gotten a big kick out of the three 
movies in the Zombies trilogy released by Disney, Disney Channel, and then Disney Plus original. He was the star of that, a, a zombie fella named Zed. And here he plays Joseph. And this film was directed by Adam Anders, and it's his first film. But kind of funny, he's, he has credits on stuff like Glee and the Captain Underpants movie, and not exactly highbrow stuff or stuff that you think of as particularly like faith based. But I guess they got in someone who's got some, you know, pop music and Hollywood experience. So there you go. Do you have overarching faith movie thoughts, Dan? Not particularly, to be honest. Uh, that is like one area of B-movie that I've never really dug into. I know there are some notorious ones. God's Not Dead, you often hear reference, but there's a whole bunch of them. This That's just one. I actually did watch this year Sound of Freedom, which was super duper bland and not very good. But that was the one that was the subject of tons and tons of controversy and made so much money at the box office, although there's speculation that a lot of that was quote-unquote astroturfed tickets to basically inflate the box office. Right, well, it was like a pay-it-forward scheme. Yeah, basically generate this propaganda that, oh, hold on, it turns out people want to see good Christian movies, not that feminist filth, not that woke garbage, but... Anyways, I, the movie itself wasn't anything to write home about, neither particularly interesting or like unhinged bad. It was just kind of a bland action movie, not even without really any action. So um, but what about you, Brian? Do you have much experience with faith based films? Not a ton, but of what I've seen, I'm pretty much in line with what you just said. Bland, not much to write home about. There is a joke in internet communities that the left can't meme. Well, the right can't make a good film. I don't know if that's the, just that they can't muster the resources to do it, or if they're just fundamentally unsound. Wait, you hear the left can't meme? I always, I've never seen it written that way. I've always seen it written as the right can't meme. Oh, I've never seen that. Probably has to do with what echo chambers each of us spend time in. There's there's a podcast called Across the Aisle, I think it is, and it's a movie podcast with someone who is right leaning and someone who is left leaning. And they, unlike us, spend a lot of time talking about their politics and how it informs their movie viewing opinions. <laughs> Maybe we'll become Across the Aisle, Brian. I actually don't even know what your politics are. And to be honest, I'm not sure I even want to know. So No, I think it's good that we steer clear generally. Yeah, but I mean, I think what's the best right leaning movie Forrest Gump? And that was 30 years ago or something. Maybe. Yeah. I feel like some of the Mel Gibsons and Clint Eastwoods have been solid, too. But it's not a sterling track record. They have a steep learning curve to climb for sure. So, yeah, I turned this one on and. I immediately had about 75,000 thoughts as we were going through this. There's just a lot to react to in this movie. <laughs> Any other preliminary thoughts before we just kind of dive into it? I mean, we're going to be telling basically the nativity story here, but I'll try to focus on the quirks as opposed to the actual the story that we that we've all heard a, a thousand times. But 
Any other preliminary thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I guess one thing would be, you say we've heard the story a thousand times. What was your faith background growing up? I was raised Catholic, and my children are baptized Catholic. Um, I went to CCD, which is religious education, a.k.a. Sunday school. And what does that stand for? Oh, I don't even know. Let me look it up. Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. Okay. Uh, I just, we always called it CCD. It's like Sunday school, but we did it on weekday nights. So I actually did learn a lot about Catholic faith. Catholics are interesting compared to Protestants. They obviously care a lot about the Bible, but uh, the big thing is Catholics have a lot of capital T tradition. Yeah, a lot of dogma type stuff. Yeah. Whereas Protestants typically more heavily emphasize like lots and lots of Bible readings and Bible study as kind of like the core act of faith as opposed to sacraments and stuff. I'm obviously overgeneralizing here and I'm sure Gavin could come in and, and clarify exactly what some of the distinctions are between Catholicism and various Protestant religions. I know I definitely want to hear Gavin's thoughts, so I'm hoping he's going to sound off in the Discord. Join our Discord listeners. Yeah, I actually have a review that he wrote of Journey to Bethlehem, and I'll read a few passages from it when we get here towards the end. Oh, excellent. Well, I grew up and primarily went to a Methodist church, so a branch of Protestantism. Not especially devout, I guess, but did Sunday school, did the annual Christmas pageant. So, yes, I've heard the story, but in reading, like, the common sense media reviews and feedback from concerned parents and stuff about this movie that we just watched, I learned some things about the Catholic perspective on Mary that I had never heard before. So we'll definitely talk a little about that. Yeah, and I would say this is very much a non-Catholic, Protestant vision of nativity more so than Catholic. And I think that, again, primarily comes down to Mary. But I don't know, like some of this kitschy stuff, it is kind of a kitschy film. I just think that's a bigger thing in Protestant world than it is in Catholic world. I don't know why, but that's just been my experience. So it never occurred to me that this was aimed at Catholics more so than than Protestants. Oh, I would also recommend I recently shouted out the nuclear history episode of Dan Carlin's history podcast. But my all time favorite that he did was one about the early Protestant Reformation, when a sect of Anabaptists took over the city of Munster in Germany in like the 1500s and just really interesting perspective on Protestantism and the idea of kind of opening Pandora's box when you decide you're going to break apart the church that's been around for 1500 years because I mean it's like breaking a pane of glass or something like it's all you can do is break it again and again and again until you just have a million splinter cells and it is a mess. So I, I think let's uh, dive into it here. So Journey to Bethlehem opens with us meeting the, the three magi, the three wise men, and they're all exaggerated comic characters here. So there's a fat one, 
and there's a kind of airheaded one. And then there's this big high energy guy, the kind of common sense one who's got this really deep voice. And the, the wise men here are played as like basically comic relief characters more than anything else. It's like we kind of trace their journey a little bit, but they're mostly around for laughs, which is already an interesting creative decision. It's like, I don't know, after uh, we watch those wise men stories, now I'm like cataloging all the different ways you can look at the three wise men. Right. So unlike some of those others, they're not the protagonists here. No, they, they got the, the B plot and they observe a star indicating the birth of the son of God and a nearby servant who's kind of helping them out. hears them talking about this and starts singing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. So this movie's got a mix of some Christmas carols and then some original songs. It's mostly original songs, but there's maybe like three Christmas carols in here, including this Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel opener which like it starts out with her kind of solemnly singing it and then it turns into like the opening credit sequence. And it's this vaguely sort of exotic thing. One thing that sort of fascinated me is like the way that this movie kind of took, you know, obviously this takes place in the Middle East where Jesus was born and kind of interprets that for American audiences. Like it seems like they just made stuff sound vaguely exotic and look vaguely exotic. Like, I don't think there was any basis in, oh, this is something that's actually sourced from the Middle East, particularly circa the year zero. I'm guessing there's not much of that, but did you have any thoughts on this? A couple. So definitely, I mean, we three kings of Orientar. So there's some Orientalism at work here make the Middle East exotic and have some of that ner 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 sound quality. But with having the Christmas carols in the mix, it would always throw me for a loop. It is kind of like at the beginning of Amadeus when Salieri is confessing to that guy, the guy that he's telling the story to, and he, you know, he goes through some of his melodies. Oh, well, you must remember this. And it's some tune that you immediately forget. And then he gets to the classic one by Mozart. Yeah, Ina Klein and Nacht music. Yeah. Oh, you wrote that? No, I didn't. <laughs> That's how I felt every time that they would go and play a Christmas carol, because immediately it's this tune that echoes through the ages and is recognizable on any instrument and everybody's going to know it. And then they go back to some original song, which you couldn't even tell me what the tune was while it was playing. <laughs> Yes, because they're not just playing the Christmas carols, they're intercutting them with original songs. Which, yeah, dampens them, I would say, a little bit. And then we meet Mary. So here she's a teenage girl, as she's often depicted, or maybe young 20s, probably like 19, something along that those lines. And she tells her father that she wants to marry a man she loves. She doesn't want to be a part of an arranged marriage, which her parents have set up for her. And she kind of goes storming out. She has this donkey sidekick named Fig. You know, you got to have an animal sidekick in a silly movie like this, I guess. And then now she's she's going to market and her sisters are with her. And here we get a song about them trying to convince her that she should be happy to get married. And the kind of punchline chorus here is Mary, 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 
married is good for you, which is some dubious uh, wording, in my opinion. I don't think I would structure a sentence that way. Married is good for you. But I actually thought this one was pretty catchy. This was one of the stronger numbers here. Right. Yeah, the bit that stuck out to me the most is them going, Mary, Mary, Mary. (laughs) That's easy to remember. And this is where it really struck me that when you kind of have this vaguely exotic feeling and these big dance numbers, because even here we're getting like a, a cast of dozens dancing in synchronized choreography. It What it really made me think of is a Bollywood musical almost. They definitely cribbed some stylistic influences from, from Bollywood movies. We, we talked about the robot Entheron movie um, a couple years ago at this point. And I was thinking a little bit about that. That's right. It's got a lot of those vibes. There is a Bollywood movie this year that I am very, very fascinated by. And it is the Archies. So it's like the Riverdale Jughead and all that, except it's a Bollywood version. And it's about the forming of the band, the Archies. And it's on Netflix. I think it's in English, but it's like. I watched five minutes of it and they had really thick Indian accents and it was like Indian style production and music. And so I'm going to check that one out at some point. I'm I'm tearing through 2023 films right now, so I'll, I'll get to that one at some point. That's fascinating. One of my favorite things to listen to and just ponder on cultural osmosis is a Japanese version of Everything's Archie, the old... Archie theme song, hmm. which was put out on a record in like the 60s. That is interesting. How many filters do you have to go through to get there? It's like American cheap, dumb teen comics, but then now through Japan. I guess there's just something universal about the Riverdale gang. Maybe. Speaking of, have you watched any of the Riverdale show, like the overdramatic CW drama? No, I haven't. Okay, it's it's a wild ride, but the this movie that came out that I actually got a big kick out of recently called Saltburn made me think a lot of the show Riverdale and how it takes a kind of like classic story and like just injects it with the most wild teenage melodrama. Anyways, back to Journey to Bethlehem here. So while she's at market, Mary bumps into this handsome tall fella. And wouldn't you know, it's Milo Mannheim just steamrolling her with uh, charm. He's got this sloppy facial hair that maybe wasn't his best look, I would say. But, you know, that's all right. What did you think of his beard? I was watching with my folks, and my mom said that he looked like Bruno from Encanto. And he's definitely got that color scheme because he's got the, like, green uh, shirt and then the darker brown robe over that. And yeah, the shaggy hair and the scruffy beard. And you can tell from the start. So this actress who's playing Mary is her name is, I think, Fiona Paloma. Um, It seems like she hasn't been in too many things before this, and they might have all been Spanish language. So this was kind of like her first big Hollywood appearance. Obviously, Milo Mannheim, we know from the Disney movies. He was also in Prom Pact this year which was a non-musical teen rom-com on Disney Plus that I thought was really good. It's just really charming. I mean, Milo Mannheim jumps off the screen. He He's electric. He, he can have chemistry with anyone. 
that's my uh, theory is he could have chemistry with anyone. It's so, like, I don't know. I re- when I rewatched Zombies One recently, I like tried to separate Meg Donnelly. Is that her name? The the female lead actress, like just trying to watch her in isolation. And she's really not good. But when she's with Milo Mannheim, I don't really care because he's got chemistry with everyone. So that's his power is he he connects with everyone. So, yeah, he's he's charming. He's growing on me and more things I see him in. When we talked Zombies 1, you described it as tall boy and what's her name? (laughs) And so Milo Mannheim, we haven't learned who he is yet. He flirts with Mary a little bit. He's just kind of a random guy at the market at this point. I wonder if he's going to end up reappearing in this. Meanwhile, as this is going on, we're kind of cutting back and forth with King Herod. So that's who Antonio Banderas plays is King Herod. And he really camps up this role. And I appreciated that. He also has this brooding son. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. I think they said it once and it didn't stick, but it's A-N-T-I-P-A-T-E-R Antipater or Antipater. I'm not sure. Right. Who was really Herod's son, the next king in the lineup, I believe. I'm not sure if Gavin mentioned him by name, but I think one of Gavin's talking points, and please correct me in the Discord if I got this wrong, was that like the biblical King Herod was only king for a narrow window of time when Jesus could have been alive. And like pretty soon, like 5 AD or something, the son became king. So... Here's what's interesting about that is on alternateending.com, the critic Tim Brayton wrote a review of this, and he talked a little bit about this. And apparently we went over this a little bit with Gavin, but apparently this son of Herod is not the other Herod, basically. So now I'm going to look up the King Herods. There's there's multiple King Herods. So he had multiple sons. So Antipater or Antipater II was that's who this is. But then it's Think Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S, who is the other Herod that's in the Bible. So there's two Herods in the Bible. And the, the character who's the son in this is not either of them. The dad is one of them. And there's some other son who became the other Herod. Interesting. So he's not a made up person, but he's also not a major figure in the Bible. So... The movie invents narrative things for him to happen to him. I found it interesting, though. I'm pretty sure Antipater is like against the father, which is kind of a funny name. It must be intentional that they kept that and chose that because we'll see that he ends up clashing with his father's barbaristic tendencies here. Is that a word? Barbaristic? I am willing to go with it. You know what I mean, even if you, if even if it's not a real word. Correct. I guess barbaric. Yeah. Bar- barbaristic sounds fine. No, I think bar- barbaric would be the word that you would you would use in this scenario. And yeah, Banderas is really having a good time. Although, as I watched it, I watched the movie twice. As I watched it the second time, it really occurred to me that like, you really only see Herod for like three scenes, and. My I'm wondering, do you think he filmed for more than one day? Like, what's the over <laughs> under for number of days they had him under contract for? It seems like they were like, all right, he's he's on. Here he is. Put him in makeup. OK, we're filming for three hours. All right. That's all we could afford. He's gone. So that's a great question, because he was 
so he had the opening scene where he's like on the castle wall and then the whole rest of the movie he's in that one throne room mm-hmm. yeah so yeah two sets maybe you know if it's not one day maybe it's two days right but he's chewing scenery hard yeah probably took half their budget and he gets a song too so we're at this point i i cal- counted it where something like four songs in 20 minutes into the movie, the songs were just coming bam, bam, bam. And I wouldn't quite put it at zombies level or teen beach or high school musical level in terms of like, as soon as the songs are going, it's fun to watch and exciting and high energy, but it's maybe just one tier below that. Like as long as music is playing and people are dancing around and they're singing dumb lines, uh, the movie is pretty watchable, I would say. It's it's the choreography is is maybe not the best, but it's better than other musicals I've seen for sure. Like they got some of that that decom energy in them. The editing was weird to me because like there'd be these big group dance numbers and then it would spend all its time on close ups of characters faces. And it's like, what? Show the dancing. Yeah. I didn't really think too much about that, but that's probably a good point. Like. I can't imagine how they're I should look up what their budget was, but it's nice on these musicals when you get to watch like long takes, zoomed out shots, wide shots of people who know how to dance actually dancing. And you really only get that for like brief shots before you're right. It kind of zooms in on one person or cuts to some other angle. But what I did like with regards to the choreography is Antipater has this squadron of Roman soldiers who follow him around. And a few times in the movie, the Roman soldiers get to dance and they are like boy band grade. And (laughs) then they'll always get a wide shot that lingers of them doing the synchronized choreography. Yeah. Antipater, by the way, dressed like a game of Thrones character. They're just kind of throwing styles left and right here. I think it's trying to evoke like Roman stuff but he basically just looks like ned stark from game of thrones got like the black cured leather and stuff all right so now back to mary here we learned that her arranged marriage is to joseph aka milo manhot and a lot of thoughts here on this so one is she's mad but it's not entirely clear why like Oh, man, your husband is charming and handsome. He's Milo Mannheim. Boy, you kind of lucked out here. But she's still kind of in general mad at arranged marriages, like down with the patriarchy and people telling me what I should do. And also, I guess she's kind of mad that he was flirting when he was betrothed, even though it was with her. But, you know, he didn't know that it was going to be her. So, oh, he was already displaying tendencies to be flirting out of wedlock you know so i guess there there was something like that but there's got to be some tension because what the revelation here that is it's obvious now in the scene is that they're gonna make this movie like basically an enemies to lovers teen rom-com in the disney channel style so we're taking the nativity story turning it into a rom-com musical in case that wasn't clear from the very first scene where they met yeah and of course we kind of knew this. It's like the whole thing that drew us to the movie. 
So in this first like 20 minutes, it just kept being like, I know, I know. Okay. We're, we're doing the thing. And I guess you got to lay that out for somebody coming to it fresh. Oh, see, that's kind of interesting because my reaction was different here is like, this was when I was most enjoying the movie is when it was basically reframing the entire nativity story as a decom rom-com musical. It's like, okay, we're getting kind of wild with this. Like this is tropes that I know, but it's, it's kind of different here. So I actually thought the opening half hour was the silliest and the most fun of, of this film. We also learned during this, this segment where they learn each other's names, they, they meet each other as the betrothed that <laughs> Joseph announces what I actually want to be is an inventor. And I'm wondering how often, like, I don't think it's biblically sourced that Joseph was an aspiring inventor. Also, it it has no bearing on the rest of the movie. It's not like he's inventing gadgets or yeah, anything. I had actually forgotten that he said that because it doesn't come back. Like, what has he invented? I don't know. <laughs> I wish there was more of him inventing. That would have been fun if, it, if we had kept that up. It does say Mary wants to be a teacher, and that's kind of what cues up Joseph to say that he wants to be an inventor. They each have their professional aspirations as well. I'm an inventor. I'm coming up with ideas that could change the world. You go, Milo Mannheim. I believe in you. <laughs> Here we get our fifth song. At this point, we're at the 27-minute mark of a 97-minute movie, and we've had five songs already. That pace is going to slow down because there's only something like, I don't know, 12 songs in the whole movie. But again, as with musicals like these, I often think they're working best when a lot of songs are, are coming. So after this, we get the Annunciation scene, and we talked a little bit with Gavin about how it's surprisingly common to depict the Annunciation in comedic terms, like with slapstick. And here we get slapstick again. So Gabriel's kind of a doofy guy. He's played by a Christian rapper named Lecrae, I think. L-E-C-R-A-E. Oh, one more thing on Joseph before we completely go away from from that. Also, Joseph is young. He's a, he's like, I don't know, late teens, early 20s. He's a dashing romantic hero. I feel like that's not what Joseph really was. Like, there, it seems unlikely that he was a, a young, handsome man. Like, I thought typically people were married off to older guys. And I sure enough, I looked it up wondering if that was something that I had invented in my head. And Wikipedia says that apparently the, the Greek translation typically uses adverbs that refer to an older, like a, an elder person, like a, a not a, a young man. So I wonder how common it is to, to see the story with Joseph as a young man. I kind of, you know, it feels kind of ooky if you have the 20 year old woman and the 50 year old man. We're not kind of used to that in Western culture these days, but I don't know. This, that was still having me scratch my head because I always learned that Joseph was probably older. Right. Or like, I feel like other movies that I've seen, it's they get around it by making them both a little older. Yeah, something like that. So do you want to talk about the virginity thing here? We can we can do this. Yeah, fair enough. This is the time. So in reading about this on the common sense, there were people commenting in the forum threads. So is this a Catholic movie? And I didn't 
understand what that meant and opened up some of the comments. And so Dan can explain this better, but there's a concept, the perpetual virginity of Mary. So not just that Jesus was conceived through the result of a virgin birth, like the Holy Spirit was the seed, but she actually remained a virgin after that forever. Right. Yeah. So in Catholicism, Mary's really important. And also like virginity is weirdly important. It's like, I don't know, this is something that I never really thought about when growing up, but looking back on it, it's weird. Like how much various Catholic doctrine talks about the fact that Mary is a virgin. And it's not just because, oh, it's the miracle. God God breathed a life into her, and that's how Jesus was born. It's more to it than that. It's like kind of this obsession with virginity that I just find kind of off-putting. And one of the beliefs about Mary in particular is, A, that she was born without original sin. So this is the Immaculate Conception. So one of my pet peeves as a Catholic is that culture often gets the term immaculate conception wrong. It typically gets used to mean the virgin birth of Jesus, or rather the virgin conception of Jesus in Mary. Right. That was what I thought until this year. But what immaculate conception actually is referring to is that Mary and also Jesus, of course, were born without original sin where every other human since Adam and Eve had been born with original sin that gets purified by baptism. And in addition to that, Mary remained a virgin throughout her whole life. So even after she got married to Joseph, I guess she never shared a marital bed with him. That's the Catholic take on it. Now, you link to an article. I had really never read any evidence one way or the other on this one, but... There's definitely some stuff in the Bible that suggests that that might not be true, or at least one or two verses. Right. So the articles that I had seen before this whole quagmire was there's one on this term brother of Jesus. There's a couple guys who get some throwaway mentions in the Bible as brothers of Jesus. And what does that mean? And so... There's debate. Okay, well, were these later children of Mary and Joseph, or were they previous children of Joseph, who, as you said, was probably older? Like, maybe he was married previously? Or were they cousins, and the whole thing got confused? But there's, like, one specific verse, at least, that says, Joseph did not know his wife until she brought forth her firstborn son. And then the discussion is, well, does until mean he necessarily did afterwards? It's like the Mitch Hedberg line. I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to, too. <laughs> That's Matthew one twenty five, by the way. Right. So I used to not know my wife. I still don't, but I used to, too. And of course, no is the biblical no, which is a euphemism for doing it. So as... Uh, half-educated Protestant, I assumed that they eventually had intercourse, hadn't thought about it too much, I guess, did not assume that she stayed a virgin forever, uh, 
but to show how much I know, I actually didn't realize you even could have sex with a woman who was pregnant before the baby was born. Like, once you knew that the pregnancy was in the works, I thought it was like drinking or smoking. It's like you just can't do that anymore until the baby is done. But I guess that is not the common view. I mean, it's not entirely ridiculous to think that because among the things that culture is good about depicting and talking about, the realities of pregnancy is really not one of them. Like, really, all you ever see pregnancy being is morning sickness and then grimacing in pain with labor. Like there is a whole nine months in there where it's actually not even nine months because the counting actually goes back before conception. It's the previous menstruation that is week zero. So like when you hit 40 weeks, you're probably less than nine months from when you learned that you were pregnant. So anyways, point being that it's, it's a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily know Unless you've had a reason to learn about it, you know. But then it's like you got to think about what did the apostles know? How could they know it? Was Jesus telling his friends about whether his mom was having sex? Right. I mean, honestly, we we got to the Annunciation. We're about to get to the scene where Mary shares with Joseph that she's pregnant. And... This is the movie that I think has done the best job for me, at least. I haven't seen that many nativity story movies of like really just painting clear, like how crazy the story would be to anyone who uses any common sense. Oh, hey, uh, I'm I'm pregnant. So first you have to tell that to Joseph. And then Joseph is to be like, what are you talking about? Obviously, there's one assuming that it's even true. There's obviously one very c clear conclusion about how that could have happened. Real great job by Mary convincing Joseph, though, like some great persuasion. And then then you have to convince the whole world around them that, oh, it's not it's not Joseph's baby. The reason that she's pregnant out of wedlock is because God put the baby inside of her. Just like think about how that would look. You know, my favorite music sequence was the scene of Joseph having just been told this information and grappling internally with what it entails, where he is literally fighting himself in his dream. And it's like a Joseph yin yang, like one is in a black Jedi robe and one is in a white Jedi robe and they're fighting in this big arena. And they're both Milo Mannheim. Yeah, they're having this big dance battle. And it's lit with red and green lights, which is a nice touch. Gives it some Christmas flavor to our existential crisis. Just like uh, <laughs> all the high school musical movies have a song where Zac Efron is, is grappling with his own doubts in some sort of fantasy sequence. Basketball's getting thrown at him. The world turning upside down. Milo Mannheim has to have a dance battle with himself. Yeah, man, this one needed a spinning hallway. Yeah, maybe something like that. But obviously this whole concept is relevant because, you know, if it's a rom-com, you want them to fall in love and get married and do all the things that married people do, which Catholics would say, no, -uh, that's not happening. So another reason to believe that it's targeted at Protestants and not Catholics. But yeah, so like we said, Mary has to share this with Joseph and with her parents and I got to say, like, from basically the moment that we have the Annunciation onwards, the song 
to runtime ratio drastically drops and there's more drama and more characters and moving pieces. And I think the energy kind of sags a lot starting with this middle act, but Joseph and his parents decide to call off the betrothal and Mary and her parents decide Mary's going to go hang out with her aunt, her mom's sister, Elizabeth, who is in the Bible. She's the mother of John the Baptist. Oh, who we don't actually see at all in this movie, but it was a very important figure. Okay. I didn't realize that. What I found interesting about this bit is uh, I had not really thought about this part that like Mary goes somewhere else and Joseph has to go track her down, but she's in this town called Hebron. And so we've got what we've got Nazareth and Bethlehem and Hebron. And every time there's a new town introduced, it cuts to a big like Indiana Jones map of Israel with a dot that shows where the town is. And I need to see all the dots at once because it seemed like they weren't very far apart. But I guess when you're walking and on donkeys, you can't go very far. Well, that's a really good point. And actually, not a surprise to me, but Gavin pulled up a map. I don't know where he actually posted the picture of the map. Somewhere he was... It was either on a, a Discord or in the comments of that review by Tim Brayton on Alternate Ending, but he was talking about how the movie is very inconsistent in what is depicted as an arduous journey versus what is depicted as something you can just kind of do, you know, without too much strain or hassle. Although it is kind of weird when she goes to this small house out in the desert and she's basically going on her donkey like through the desert and she like looks all exhausted when she gets there. And it's like, did she go out into the desert without like having a plan of survival? Like, where is her supplies? Where is her water? She just kind of stumbles into Elizabeth's house. Like, was she going to die to the elements out there if she didn't get lucky and, and find that house pretty quickly? And as all this is going on, other people are having dreams, too. Joseph has the breakdown you talked about, but he also gets a whisper from Gabriel saying, hey, you got to go back to Mary. And of course, we have Herod, who basically starts getting these these nightmares, uh, these night terrors about a new king coming, because, of course, he's all evil. And I like his throne room. They digitally added like bright red eyes on all of the lion sculptures and carved in black stone. And there's it's torch lit and stuff. Very satanic. I really liked the creepy lion set. And of course, we know that the Magi meet with Herod. And here's where we get the Three Wise Men song. So it's actually called Three Wise Guys, which is a joke that we used last episode. And I, I'm certain that we we're not the first to point out that uh, wise men sounds like, hey, you wise guy. That's a bit of slang. Right, like the Three Stooges, basically. This is where we get the runner that... Nobody knows what myrrh actually is. <laughs> and he keeps changing what myrrh can do. And that was a little bit of an anachronistic joke that, again, I used the word kitsch earlier. That that really kind of struck me as tongue in cheek here. Right. Yeah. He's like, gold can buy things. Frankincense smells good. And myrrh does everything else. <laughs> but Herod basically having his fears that there's this other king confirmed. He's like, all right, we got to go find that baby and kill the baby because I'm the king. There can't be another king. And he sends his son out to go do it. So 
Remember, this is the Game of Thrones Antipater, or however we decided it's pronounced, in the, the black leather. And he he starts hunting around, and of course he gets to Elizabeth's at the exact same time that Joseph gets to Elizabeth. And so Mary's like, Joseph, what are you doing here? But Joseph's like, you gotta hide, you gotta hide. And they avoid detection. So they have successfully hidden from Herod and his men once here. But now... Joseph and and Mary are back together. Joseph's like, "All right, I'm doing it. This is we're we're going to we're going to be together. I think that's what I'm called to do. I believe you." And Mary's like, "All right, well, we're getting married right now then." I was like, "Man, that's an intense move. We can't even wait till tomorrow morning. We're getting married right now." I think the reasoning is then if anyone comes and asks, "Hey, is there anyone unmarried here who has a baby?" You can be like, "No. I'm married. See, look, here's my husband right here, a tall guy right there." Right, it's kind of like at the climax of Spielberg's Lincoln. <laughs> Nothing's being debated right now. <laughs> have to use very precise wording. Oh, one thing I didn't mention is Elizabeth's husband is completely mute, but also like a temple priest. I don't know if either of those things about Elizabeth's husband are backed up in the Bible or any tradition or anything, but they decide that that means that he can be the officiant to their wedding. And so they get a a nice little wedding song together. And this is like right around, we start getting their kisses constantly interrupted. So it's, when are they actually going to kiss? When are they actually going to kiss? And building to, of course, it will happen by the end. So Herod's men didn't find Mary with this sweep. So now they're like, well, we didn't find this king that's about to be born, the pregnant woman with him. What do we do now? So Herod's solution is, all right, We know that the baby's going to be in Bethlehem. Let's just kill every single pregnant woman in Bethlehem. Bingo bongo. Taking care of business. (laughs) Love how matter of fact he is about this. (laughs) And this is where we really start to get the doubt of Antipater, the man against the father. He's like, a little flicker of conscience in there. Maybe we shouldn't go and kill every single pregnant woman. Like, maybe that'd be a little bit unethical. I don't know. What do you think? balking at the mass murder just a little bit. And so he comes up with with an alternate scheme, which much more complicated. We're going to call a census. So everyone has to go back to their hometown. All right. I mean, that kind of makes sense. I I don't recall that being why the census is called in the Bible. I'm pretty sure that's not why, but it kind of makes sense because then you got everybody in the spot. Very easy to find the one who is about to give birth and boom. You only have to kill one pregnant woman. You don't have to kill them all at this point. So Joseph and Mary, there's this weird scene where like uh, some official looking Roman guy comes in and kind of bullies Joseph and Mary to going. I don't know who this guy was, but he's like, no, you got to go to the census or you're going to the dungeon. But Mary's also about to give birth. So I think at this point we're at something like December 23rd or something like that. So they travel to Bethlehem. And this is where we get the inconsistency. Now it's like this. We got to do the zoom out Indiana Jones with the camels riding. I think I read that it's like 90 miles from where they started to Bethlehem, which is a respectable distance if you got to go on a donkey. That's true. So maybe we're talking December 16th or something. They say something like it's going to take a week. And so now by the time they get there, there's like a long line to get into the city, but... Mary's about to give birth. And so Milo Mannheim's like, I know a secret entrance into Bethlehem. 
And so there's like an underground sewer that they have to sneak into to to get in. I like the idea of a secret entrance into a town that doesn't have borders. You just walk in there. You don't need to. There doesn't need to be a secret entrance. <laughs> he knows Bethlehem like the back of his hand. He's got some hairs there. What What's that in that they make that joke? So the little mole on my thumb. That's Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, okay, that's right. I knew it was something I just watched recently. And then this is where we get the Christmas night story that we know so well. All the inns are full, so they get a barn, and Jesus is born. And this is where we get another one of the Christmas carols. We get Silent Night, and like a shepherd is singing it when she sees the star. And then, like I guess the instant that Jesus is born, the star like blows up bright, and the arrangement turns super dramatic. I really liked this moment when... What do they say? There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Probably the best visual representation of that that I've seen, where it's one angel and then suddenly, boom, you've got this hundred part harmony. Fall on your knees. Related to that, I'm going to link the old Gauntlet clip where we sang Oh Holy Night. <laughs> it had some of that same grandeur. So then the wise men show up too. They give their three gifts. There's some more joking about what does Murr actually do? And then Antipater shows up. Well, actually, I take it back. First thing that happens is they all fall asleep. You're not falling asleep with a newborn baby. I can, that's not something that's likely to happen. But anyways, they do all fall asleep. And then Antipater shows up and they all wake up and he's standing there like glaring down at them. And he's figured out who they are. But this is when he has his moment of redemption. He's like... All right, I believe in the divinity of Jesus. I will give you protection out of here. But as soon as my dad has heard that you have been born, he's going to do some real bad stuff. Not specifying what the bad stuff's going to be, which we know to be lots more mass murder. But yeah, so they head off into the sunset. And at last they get their kiss that had been frequently interrupted. The rom-com is complete. They don't really have a third act breakup, so it doesn't quite fit the rom-com exactly, but it does jump forward. And I guess the takeaway is that they've been telling the story to toddler Jesus the whole time, or maybe just this part of the story. And this had me wondering, like, were they embellishing stuff as it was going on? Like maybe the heavenly hosts weren't singing quite that loud. Maybe it was just kind of a clear night and you could see some stars. And like in the, the agony and euphoria of childbirth, it felt like the, heavenly angels were singing or maybe it was i don't know yeah this whole thing was uh, how i met your mother <laughs> told by joseph milo Mannheim, or the princess bride or the wonder years or something like that where we're going through an unreliable narrator having antipater show up at the manger was interesting i guess they just decided they weren't going to put that part in the book <laughs> it makes for a good dramatic ending though i, I liked this shot where it revealed that he was there glaring down on them. It also kind of makes some sense because one would think that Herod would just send one of his guys with the wise men. Be like, okay, well, they know where he is, so just follow them. I think we talked a little bit about that last week. I never quite understood that whole element of it. It's like they meet up, but then Herod can't find Jesus, despite the fact that the wise men met up with Herod. Yeah. So this kind of explains that. As the movie wraps we do get a title card that says while taking some creative license the filmmakers strive to remain true to the message of the greatest story ever told 
basically saying it's okay if we make anachronistic mer jokes and turn this into a cheesy dancing rom-com. We're not being sacrilegious if we do that. We're being sacrilegious. <laughs> and that is Journey to Bethlehem. They made their journey. So this is an interesting one, Brian. It opened with the unhinged energy I kind of expected. Flagged a little bit. Did have some good scenes in the second half, though, that I thought carried it well enough. What are some of your thoughts? This was definitely my favorite slapstick enunciation with the angel rehearsing what he was going to say. And then he takes off and he floats down the hallway and immediately cracks his head on the door jam. Yeah, that was pretty funny. He like preps himself and then bumps his head. What about you? Other thoughts, Dan? The actress who played Mary, I thought she was better than, I think I might have already said this, but I thought she was a better foil for Milo Mannheim than Meg Donnelly was. I thought she was very pretty too, and I wouldn't mind seeing her in other films. I wonder if she's going to get her breakthrough, because it seems like she could play Disney Channel type roles. It's also interesting, like seeing some modern values projected onto it, like the whole kind of opening with, oh, I'm Mary, I'm a feminist. I think that I should be able to marry whoever I want, not who my parents tell me I should marry. Yeah, I was getting some Aladdin vibes. And then we have the scene where she meets him in the marketplace. And there's, you know, mistaken identity and you're saying you're one person, but you're really somebody else. That's a good connection. And sometimes like the way that she kind of drapes cloth over her head when she's trying not to get detected is kind of like when Jasmine disguises herself when she goes into the marketplace. I have the review by Gavin that he wrote on Letterboxd up. I'm going to read a few passages from it. I'm excited. He gave the film 1.5 stars out of five. (laughs) He opens it by saying, this is not the worst version of the nativity story that I've seen this Christmas season, if you can believe it. Call back to the really stupid Wiseman movies we watched last week. The idea of a decom version of the Christmas story is so dumb, it's brilliant. And the terrible comedy and autotune songs assured me that I was in good hands. I think there's scare quotes on that good. He talks about some of the dumb ideas. He says, the dumbest idea is that Antipater, the eldest son of Herod the Great, chafed at his father's paranoia and decadence. Antipater is not part of the Christmas story and has no business being in this movie. He is a major figure in the works of Josephus and his biography of Herod. If you want to know about Antipater's moral fiber, you need not read any further than book one of The Jewish War where he plots to have his half-brothers killed so he can inherit the throne. Herod gets wind of this, and having already killed two of his sons at Antipater's behest, kills Antipater as well. Okay. Okay, well, now we know what happened to Antipater. What I said earlier was incorrect. I said Gavin would be able to correct me, and now he's done so. Done so through the magic of the internet. The least dumb idea is casting Antonio Banderas as Herod himself. I don't know why Banderas accepted the role, but I'm glad that he did. He is about the only one who understands the assignment. More disappointing is DCOM superstar Milo Mannheim of of Zombies fame, who's playing things a little too straight. I thought he was good, but I I can see that. He didn't, he could have gotten a little more carried away. That was the one thing I didn't say is they hardly ever have Milo Mannheim dance. 
He's he was the runner up and should have been the winner of Dancing with the Stars the season that he was on. He's a fantastic dancer. He was on Dancing with the Stars? I didn't know that. Yeah. He came in second to country radio host Bobby Bones, but apparently that season they like put a lot of emphasis on the voting. And so Bobby Bones got like a you know a vote boost from his his listeners. Interesting. But Milo Mannheim's a fantastic dancer and he doesn't dance very much in this movie. Yeah. He says, Mannheim does not get anything nearly as entertaining, save for a line in one song where he rhymes immaculate conception with ultimate deception. Oh, I didn't even mention that the whole immaculate conception thing is used incorrectly in this movie. So thank you, Gavin, for reminding me of that. A couple other things Gavin says. He says, the movie mangles the gospel stories, but I'm always more interested in deviations from the biblical text anyways. The Magi are three in number and retain their traditional names, but they at least seem to come from the same place. Why would they know any prophecies about the Jewish Messiah beats me? Mary's parents are given their traditional names from Proto-Evangelium of James, but nothing else comes from that apocryphal book. We learned that Joseph's mother is named Rachel. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, are relocated from Ein Karem, where the Church of the Visitation is, to Hebron. That one's a head-scratcher, especially since Hebron is farther away from Nazareth than Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph go to Hebron and come back to Nazareth, only to go back down to Bethlehem. But going to Bethlehem is some kind of arduous journey, while the trek to Hebron wasn't? Why? I could go on nitpicking, and since that's what people expect of me, I will do just that. Here, he's got a couple more bullet point items, and and then we'll be done here. Can temple priests officiate at weddings? I literally don't know the answer. Why wasn't the birth of John the Baptist depicted? What happened to the shepherds? Were the Magi the shepherds too? Are the filmmakers aware that the Herods are Jews and not Romans? That's a very good point, because they are very much dressed as if they are Romans. Wasn't Quirinius responsible for the census? Where the hell was he? When will we ever get a cinematic depiction of Jesus's circumcision? (laughs) Thanks for that one, Gavin. Why would you cut that? Same for the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Why would you cut that? Good one. I remain unconvinced that the nativity story can be made into a compelling film. So that is Gavin's take on Journey to Bethlehem 2023. Well done. All good points. Covering some of the same ground as we've just discussed. And I think that brings us to Is It Good? Unless you have anything else you want to throw out there, Brian. Just to say that when we did speak with Gavin last week, he described the nativity as not a story, but the beginning of a story. And I guess there is some prequel feeling to it. Oh, prequel. That tells me that we're going to need the follow-ups. I think the problem is Joseph doesn't get anything to do with those. So... Maybe you can do like the X and Pearl thing and have Milo Mannheim cast as Jesus when he's a young man in the sequel. Oh, wow. Right. We need the Easter musical. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, I'll ask you, is Journey to Bethlehem good? So I was a little worried that I might come off as too harsh on this movie, but you just read Gavin's review, and I'm not going to be that harsh. So I'm going to give it a 3 out of 8, which is a 
what what do we call that not not good correct been a while since i gave a three i think i gotta go back to our records but there were things that i liked here milo manheim is always charming i like this mostly for the fact that it exists like it didn't disappoint me too much i wasn't expecting too too much either i would like to see a little more of the choreography in these crowd scenes and as gavin pointed out too the distances are hard to understand i don't know if clarifying that would add too much to the movie but uh, it had me scratching my head a little bit the budget isn't super high as kind of goes part and parcel with this sort of thing but it was interesting. I'm glad that we watched it. I'm glad we didn't just end after three Three Wise Men movies. Gotta go four. Gotta go big. How how are you feeling, Dan? Is it good? So I watched this movie twice. The first time I watched it, I was sufficiently swept away in the very silliness of the premise and the high points that I was kind of right on the line of a four and a five leaning towards giving it a five just because I really got a lot of enjoyment out of the very silliness of the concept. And as I've said in the past, like for me, there's no such thing as so bad. It's good. It's like, if it entertains me, it's good. It may not be good in the way that film textbooks describe th things as good, but it can be funny and it can be entertaining. And it can be compelling. Even if it's not good at those things, even if the very silliness of the premise, the outrageousness of it, puts it into comedy territory, you know, or like kitsch camp gonzo silliness. I don't know what the right words are, but this has some of that. But watching it a second time, I really felt the energy kind of lag for much of it. I want it to be so fun and so campy and so outrageous. But the truth is, it only is now and again. Only some of the musical numbers are like, energetic enough to kind of sweep me away and it's it's giddiness only a couple of the performances are that i mean mainly banderas and then a lot of it is just kind of fine it's whatever so i still get a kick out of it but it's gone from i definitely need to watch it again to i wouldn't object to watching it again but i wouldn't go out of my way to watch it again so i think that feels like a low four to me i'm gonna say this is good ish it's charming in its ineptitude, not ineptitude. It's a charming in for what it is. It's also doesn't quite subvert that. It doesn't quite transcend that the way that, for example, zombies just goes all out and doing it. And honestly, I, I wouldn't feel too guilty giving it a three either, but I already said four, so I guess I'll stick with that. So I'm going to give this a good ish. All right. So we're not too far apart. Maybe this movie would have benefited from really committing to a color scheme like Zombies one. And I think just making everything even sillier. That's the my thing. Make it more over the top. Be less serious. I know we're talking about God, but that doesn't mean you need to be serious about it. <laughs> but I'm glad we caught up with Mannheim's latest. And that's all I got on Journey to Bethlehem, Brian. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to do our 150th episode spectacular. We're now a couple episodes past 150. So we will be discussing episodes 101 to 150 
and we'll do like a little awards show thing. And then what are we going to be watching after that, Brian? Well, I think by that point, we'll be into the meaty part of January. Coming up on my birthday again, believe it or not, my fourth birthday that we've been doing this podcast. Crazy. Because Dan, back in the summertime, had us talk about that thing you do, his favorite film. I thought it would make sense for me to choose the one that topped my top 100 when we talked about that, which is the film UHF, starring Weird Al Yankovic from 1989, about a guy who takes over a UHF television station and uses it to broadcast weird TV shows. And if it's not apparent why this movie resonated with me pretty strongly, and we'll dig into that as we watch. I saw this movie once in college. I can't remember if that was before or after I learned it was your favorite movie. I'm definitely excited to see it again now that I know a little bit more about you, of course, as well as Weird Al, and have just seen more movies, so I'm excited. First, we'll be doing our spectacular, and then we'll be talking about UHF. So thank you very much, Brian, and thank you, listeners, as always, for joining us on another episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Join us on the Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, and uh, we'd love to hear you. We'll drop some supplemental media in the Discord there. And as always, thank you for joining us. Yeah, this was fun. Good talking to you, Dan. Christmas is in the can. 2024 is ahead. That's right. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.